be seated again. Good morning. We'll be in Ephesians chapter 1 this morning again. As we pastors got together just to kind of talk about this upcoming year, we felt it really important that we take a part of the first part of the year to just seek the Lord. And that's why we're having these two weeks of prayer. And, you know, at first the inclination is to seek the Lord to get something from Him, like we need guidance from Him or we need direction from Him. And all of that's, of course, very important. But what we're sensing from the Lord is that He is desiring that His people would worship Him in spirit and in truth. So He's moving on our hearts just to seek Him for the purpose of seeking Him, just to find Him. And that's really what we want, is to just grow in seeking out and finding the Lord uh, as a body of believers and as individuals. So that's really what much of what we're going to be doing the next couple of weeks is about. So lots of opportunities Monday through Friday at the 6.30 time slot uh, to come and seek the Lord together. Ephesians chapter 1. This morning in verses 5 and 6. Having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, by which he has made us accepted in the Beloved. Years ago I heard a message by author Frank Peretti that included a classic comment about a modern student that is in a typical public school classroom. And what that modern student is being taught about evolution. And Peretti sums up the teaching that students receive in their classrooms about evolution. He sums it up with this line, evolution teaches that you go from goo to you by way of the zoo. That's how you came. There was the goo, and then to the zoo, and then finally to you. So that student sits in that classroom and hears all this tremendous wisdom, and then the bell rings and heads off into uh, the next class, where in his humanities class, he's or some other class, the teacher is teaching that student about self-esteem and about how important it is for that student to have self-esteem. You see the problem here? <laughs> if it's goo to zoo to you, then what's the basis for any self-esteem? Our lives are meaningless and our existence is meaningless and there is no point. The basic question of life, who am I? And another basic question of life, where am I going? And another basic question of life, what is my life about? None of those can be answered by the philosophy or hypothesis of evolution. It's chaos. If I come from chaos and disorganization and randomness, how does my life mean anything? Now the same could be true where someone who comes from a different kind of upbringing, may have the same struggle. How does somebody develop a proper self-esteem? How does someone view himself or herself? What if you came from an alcoholic home like I did, 
My father was an alcoholic for 40 years before he finally got sober. Or what if you came from a home with abusive parents? Or what if you came from a home that had an absent father? Absent but and not accounted for. How does a child growing up in a home like that, just with those factors working in his life or her life, develop a proper self-esteem? And then compounding the problem is that after we come to Christ, there is an enemy of our souls, the accuser of the brethren, who is constantly seeking to accuse us before God day and night, bringing us down, putting us down, making us believe things about ourselves that are not true. So how do we solve these great and perplexing dilemmas concerning the basic questions of life? Who am I? And what does my life mean? And where am I going? And what am I about? And I love something that I heard many years ago Josh McDowell share in his studies through the book of Romans. And this, this one grabbed me, this comment, and I inserted it into my memory bank and began to try to figure out what it meant. But the comment was this, the only true thing about you as a believer in Jesus Christ is what God says about you. It's not the classroom philosophy, it's not the absent father home, it's not the alcoholic home, it's not the home with abusive parents. None of those things define us. In Christ, the only true thing about us is what God says about us. And that's why this first section in Ephesians, one of the reasons anyway, why this first section in Ephesians is so important for us to understand and grasp and assimilate and personalize. Get these things into the heart. Because we need to know who we are. And as we said last week, who we are is defined by one very simple little phrase, two words, in Christ. The believer's identity is in Christ. Who the believer is, is in Christ. Where the believer is going is in Christ. What the believer's life is all about is in Christ. It's all in him, and it's all Christ in us. That's the summary of the Christian life. So it's important that we get it. So what are the keys to Ephesians? Well, as we pointed out by way of reminder, last week, chapters 1 through 3 talk about the believer's wealth in Christ. What we have from the perspective of the eternal heavenly vantage point. And then, of course, because we have this kind of wealth, and because God has done all these things for us in Christ, what is our response? Our response is to believe these things to be true, and to receive them into our lives personally, and to live as the spiritual rich children that we are in him. The next section of Ephesians deals with the believer's walk in Christ. And this is the section that tells us what the Christian life looks like as we place one foot in front of another walking on planet Earth, terra firma. What does it mean to live and walk as a Christian? Chapters 4 through the first part of chapter 6 show us that. And then the final section of the book is in chapter 6, verses 10 through 18, where we 
learn about our warfare in Christ and the opposition that is against us. And as we again pointed out last week in the introduction to this study, the book of Ephesians teaches us how to sit with Christ in the heavenly places, how to walk with Christ here on earth by the Spirit, and how to stand in Christ against the powers that are against us. And that's the message of the book. Again, Wilkinson gives this synopsis, Ephesians is addressed to a group of believers who are indescribably rich in Jesus Christ, but who are living a beggarly existence because they are ignorant of their wealth. And because they have not appropriated their wealth, they are walking like spiritual paupers. Wealthy, but not realizing it. Spiritual trillionaires, but living like we've just gone bankrupt. And so Ephesians is written to you and me that that condition, that that situation might be fixed, might be remedied, so that we would live consistently with what we've been given. But we do have the problem of being satisfied with way too little. And so this quote was given to me last week, and I think it's a good one from C.S. Lewis's sermon, The Weight of Glory which he delivered at Oxford University in June of 1941. He said, quote, It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition, when infinite joy is offered us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum, because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea. We are far too easily pleased. And how true that can be so many times. And so we need to believe the message and apply and live the message of this great epistle. The outline of the message this morning, the meaning of predestination in Ephesians 1.5, the purpose or end of predestination in Ephesians 1.5, the blessing of being adopted into God's family, the motive of God in adopting us into his family, the inevitable result of adoptive grace, and then the fact that we are accepted in the beloved. Verse 5 again, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself. So, Many times, you know, we see the word predestined and it scares us half to death. Oh no, this means something that I cannot wrap my mind around. It's too complicated for me. It has too many implications that are scary. And so I'm going to avoid that doctrinal subject and not think about it and not study it and certainly not enjoy it. But what does the word predestined mean? It simply means to determine beforehand. It means to determine beforehand. So, the scripture here, the text, our passage, is clear. We have been predestined to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself. This is something God did. God predestined. He determined something beforehand. Now, what was it that God predetermined beforehand? And this is the key to understanding predestination. What God predetermined beforehand 
is that those who believe in Jesus Christ would be adopted by God as sons. It's really that simple. God made a decision that those who came to Christ would be placed into his family as adopted children. That was the decision he made. He didn't force the decision. He still allowed human choice to accept it or reject it. But this is the decision he made. He could have made another decision. He could have predetermined that we remain slaves in some way. Or he could have predetermined that those that are in Christ would be somehow outside of the family of God. Or somehow less glorious than he has made us. He could have determined all kinds of things, but what he did determine beforehand is that those who are in Christ would be placed as sons and daughters into his family, as adopted sons and daughters into his family. It's a blessing. It's a state of privilege. He made us part of a wonderful, wonderful family unit called the body of Christ, sons and daughters of the living God. That was the thing that was predetermined. There's no mention here of predetermining some and forcing them to make a decision. There's nothing suggested here whatsoever of God overruling human choice. These concepts aren't even in the text. But some who have abused the idea of predestination and not viewed the idea of predestination within the biblical context of each passage have come to conclusions that are not biblical. Here's what it says. We have been predestined unto the adoption of sons by Jesus Christ unto himself. That seems pretty simple to me. Now my choice here, knowing this, is whether or not I will enjoy it and believe it. I mean, I who once had absolutely no value to God whatsoever. I was an enemy of God through my wicked works. Reprobate, depraved in my thoughts. Understanding was darkened, separated from God's life. Living in shame and in guilt and doing shameful things. That was my life. And there was no smile from God upon my behavior. He loved me, but he hated my sin. And I was his enemy, according to Romans chapter 5. But God did something to convince me by his spirit that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And that I should place my trust and faith in him and have the eternal life that he promised. And when that decision was made, God didn't just leave me in that condition. Okay, now you're no longer my enemy, but that's about as far as it goes. He elevated me, placed me into his family. Gave me worth. Gave me value. Gave me significance. Gave me meaning. And he did it for you as well. We're, we're an entirely different kind of experience and an entirely different kind of status now that we are in Christ. We are his adopted sons and daughters. And that's what adoption means. It means to be placed as sons. And that's what was determined that those who were in Christ would be placed as sons into his family. 
predestined unto the adoption of sons by Jesus Christ to himself. Now the blessing of being adopted into God's family is that we are blessed with all kinds of privileges of what it means to be in God's family. Adam Clark points out that adoption had been granted to the Jewish people as a nation, but now is extended to the Gentiles without being circumcised or without having to obey any other Mosaic rite. Gentiles have been admitted into all the privileges of his church and people. That's what it means to be adopted. Gabaline goes on to say that believers in the Lord Jesus Christ are born into the family of God. And the Greek, the word, euothasia, means son place. We are placed into the position as sons. Paul writes about this in Romans 8.15. He said, you did not receive the spirit of bondage leading to fear again, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. And I'd like you to hold your finger here and flip back a couple of pages to Galatians chapter 4, if you will. And read this passage with me, which shares the same truth with us. Paul in Galatians 4.4 said that when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, that would be Jesus, born of a woman, that would be Mary, born under the law, that would be the law of Moses, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons, that we might be placed as sons into the family of God. Now here are some of the privileges, verse 6. And because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. We have this intrinsic knowledge now that has been placed within us that God is indeed our father. And that whereas before we were his enemies, we no longer are his enemies. And that he cares for us and that he loves us and that he's for us and not against us. These are things that the Spirit places within our hearts. And then in verse 7, Therefore you are no longer a slave but a son, and if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. So a son, if that was not enough, goes on to becoming an heir of God. Everything that God has we receive through Christ. That's the family that we're in. And that's the relationship we've been given. William Barclay, in his commentary on Ephesians, talked about the process of Roman law and adoption, first century customs. After the adoption was complete, it was complete indeed. The person who was adopted had all the rights of a legitimate, naturally born son in his new family and completely lost all rights within his own old family. In the eyes of the law, he was a brand new person. And so new was he, was that all debts and obligations that he had incurred while being with his previous family were abolished, as though they never existed. God has freed us and released us from the penalty of the broken law 
and any debt we may have owed to God, and he's brought us into a warm relationship with himself, a family relationship adopted as sons. Now here's the thing. Suppose I'm that kid that all I've heard all my life is out of the goo and into the zoo and then to you. And that's all I know. But then I come to Christ. How do I figure out who I am? This is it. I've been adopted as a son into the family of God through Jesus Christ. And I begin to build on that. I begin to live that way. People who have been adopted into great families live a different way. I haven't shared uh, all of my testimony, but part of my testimony has to do with my daughter. She's a godly woman. She's 29. She's got three children, loves a, and, and her husband, who is a godly man, and they're serving the Lord, and the Lord has done a, a wonderful thing in their lives. But when my daughter was 14, she got pregnant. It was something that uh, was such a, a difficult thing, and I was so motivated to want to support her that I offered to resign from my position at Calvary Chapel, Monterey Bay, the elders in the church body would have none of it, <laughs> and they were very supportive. And so my daughter decided to, uh, of course, being pro-life, keep her baby, which she did. And then she began to pray for what she should do. And pretty quickly she determined that she was going to release the baby for adoption. And so this baby uh, was going to be released for adoption. And then my daughter began to pray specifically for the family, the kind of family that she would release her baby uh, for adoption to. So she began to pray for specific things like stay-at-home mother, some, a family that already had at least one other adopted child so that this child wouldn't feel alone, uh, a family that was, was athletic and valued an active lifestyle. Of course, they had to be Christians, God-loving, Christ-serving believers. Uh, and there were a number of things that she began to pray for. And finally, this portfolio came across my daughter's uh, lap of this family from the Fresno area, and they seemed to be perfect. And so this was the family that uh, she chose for her little girl that was to be born. And we've become uh, pretty close with this family. It's an open sort of an adoption, and it's an amazing family. This little girl is such a blessed little girl to grow up in this family. She's now 15 years old, and she is, uh, she's grown up in a family where there are two other adopted children, girls, in the family. The mother is a stay-at-home mom. The father is a basketball coach and very athletic, also a youth pastor in his brother's church, where his brother is the senior pastor. Oh, another thing that my daughter prayed for was a lot of cousins and a lot of aunts and uncles. Well, there are lots of cousins and lots of aunts and uncles. There are 23 cousins. And they all live within that general area. And every aunt and every uncle and every cousin is actively serving the Lord in a church and is born again by the Spirit of God. When they come together, and I attended one of these birthday parties. They have to have a birthday party every month. <laughs> 
and the patriarch of the family presides over the birthday party. And during these birthday parties, they speak into the life of the birthday man or the birthday woman or the birthday boy or the birthday girl. They speak prophetic words into the life of this birthday person. And that person shares a little bit about what God did in their lives this last year as a result of what they sensed that he wanted to do that year. And so they give a report. They worship the Lord. It's one of the best services, church services, I've ever been in, and it was in somebody's living room. And this girl, this young girl, her name is Brenna. There's another little catch thing here. My daughter's name is Brenna. But this family decided that if they were able to adopt another child, another girl, they would name her Brenna. This was before they even met my daughter. <laughs> There are a lot of different things going on there, you know. But this young girl has so, is so blessed to grow up in a home like this. Does she feel like an adopted daughter? Not at all. She doesn't even know what that means. She knows her birth mom. And she knows about all of those details and facts and so on. But she is specially blessed to be the daughter of David and Susan. She is fully in that family, not a second-class citizen. There is absolutely no opportunity that she will not have in life according to what God has called her to do and to be. And that's what every single one of us have. No matter how poor we are financially, no matter what our background may have been, no matter what our past was like, no matter what sins we've committed, no matter how much we botched up things through the sinful lives that we lived. God is a redeeming God, and adoption is full and complete, and it's always for the purpose of giving us what he calls a future and a hope. That's what God does. That's what God does. And for that reason... And many others, just her confidence in the Lord. My daughter has never experienced regret for having released her little girl to adoption. And she was later told that women who make a choice to do what she did make the best mothers themselves once they're able to raise their own children. My daughter's a great mother. That's what God has given us. The blessing of adoption placed into this new family. Now, the text tells us, predestined unto adoption as sons. Please don't misunderstand. This is not gender-specific gender or exclusive. How do I know that? Well, 2 Corinthians 6, verses 17 and 18, the Lord calls out to his people and says, Come out from among them and be separate. Touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you. And I will be a father to you, and you shall be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord. So it's not just a male thing. It's not gender specific, and it's not gender exclusive. So why did God do it? What is the motive of God in adoption? Again, it's pretty simple and fairly clear. At the end of verse 5, it says that he did it according to the good pleasure of his will. In other words, he did it because he wanted to. 
It was in his will to do it. He wanted to do it. This is who he is, and this is what he is like. It was his good pleasure to do that. Now, we, we look around and we see, even in our own fellowship, we have families that have reached out and adopted children into their family. And these children are loved as their own natural-born children, and it's wonderful to watch, it's beautiful to see. And we see great acts of love, we see great acts of kindness whenever an orphan is brought into a family, or perhaps an abused child which has become an orphan is taken in by a loving family. You know, last year the movie Blindside uh, won a lot of awards. It's a story of Sean and Leon Tui, uh, Leanne Tui. They adopted this prospective athlete, this big kid out of the inner city of Memphis, Tennessee, and they brought him into their family and they wanted him to be a part of the family. They included him in the annual Christmas picture of the family. And they raised him as their own. Why did they do that? Because they wanted to. They wanted to show love to this, this young boy, this young man. They wanted to bless him and they, they loved him. Now if we see on a human level those kinds of acts of love and kindness and devotion, let's just understand that God is greater than we are. Jesus said, if you being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more shall your Father in heaven give good things to those who ask him? So humanly speaking, we can see people wanting to do these things to adopt children into their family. Well, how much more so on the part of our Heavenly Father. He wanted you in His family. 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 Every one of you. He wants and wanted in His family to give you full access to all the blessings and privileges that that means, including making you an heir. He put you in His will. Signed by the blood of Jesus. So, what's the motive of God? He, the motive was he just wanted to, because that's who he is. What's the inevitable result of this kind of grace? Verse 6 tells us it's to the praise of the glory of his grace. The inevitable result of adoption is that we look at God and we say, only you would have done that. Only you could have done that. You are amazing. You are a gracious, merciful, and loving Father, and we worship you and honor you for it. That's the result. It puts on display the grace of God, and when the grace of God is put on display, the God of grace is put on display. The greatest being in the universe, by far, is finally shown to be who he actually is through this act of grace called adoption. So we worship him. And that worship of him, of course, leads to us giving our lives to him. The next blessing that we see is in verse 6, to the praise of the glory of his grace by which he has made us accepted in the beloved. Accepted. That's the New King James translation. Other translations 
uh, worded a little more differently. The Darby translation, he has taken us into his favor in the beloved. The American Standard Version, which he freely bestowed upon us, the NIV, which he has freely given us. The word here, translated, accepted in the New King James Version, is the Greek word which means to endue with special honor, to make accepted, to be highly favored. It's, the word is pronounced karitao, and it comes from the, the word for grace. The Greek word for grace is charis. My oldest granddaughter, her middle name is charis. The word for grace. And so you take the derivative charis and then uh, add something to it, and it means to be endued with special honor, to be made accepted, to be highly favored. Remember when Gabriel came to Mary and he was going to announce to her that she was going to be the mother of the Messiah. Do you remember how, she, how the angel opened his words to Mary? What he first said to her? Rejoice, highly favored one. The Lord is with you. Blessed are you among women. Highly favored one. Same word as this one here. To be endued with special honor. To be highly favored to be made accepted. Now Jesus himself was completely accepted by his father. We understand that, right? At the transfiguration, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. At Jesus' baptism, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Jesus was completely accepted by the father. I love the fact that in Jesus' baptism, which was the time at which he became the Messiah, that's when he was anointed by the Spirit. You know how all that works? Messiah is simply the Hebrew word for anointed one. The anointing comes by the Spirit of God coming upon this one individual. The anointing of the Spirit, the anointed one, that's what Messiah means. And at Jesus' baptism, the Spirit came upon Jesus in the form of a dove. That's when he was anointed by God to do what he did for three years in order that he might be confirmed as the Messiah to Israel and the Savior of the world. But before he did a single thing as Messiah before he ever healed anyone, before he ever cast out any demon from anyone, before he raised anyone from the dead, before he went to the cross, before he was buried, before he rose himself from the dead, before he did anything, we hear the voice of the Father saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Jesus was completely accepted and favored by the Father before he did a single thing. As are we in him. We are not human doings. We are human beings. And the Lord values his deposit that he's placed in us. 
and he values the value he's placed upon our lives. And that's how we should see ourselves. He's made us accepted into the beloved. He's given us a place of great favor. And all of this is in Christ. He's delivered us from the power of darkness. He's conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of his love. He's done this for us. We are accepted. We are favored. We are blessed. We are highly honored by God. And this is something that we just need to pray in, frankly. We need to pray it into our hearts. We need to pray it into our spirits. You know, it's, it's sort of weird to think that we should be spending time in what could seem like such a self-centered pursuit. Spending time in meditation and spending time in prayer about who we are in Christ. It seems, at first glance to many, that it's just sort of a self-centered pursuit. I remember years ago, I was struggling with things like spiritual depression and being overwhelmed in the matters of the ministry, and things were hard for me. It was a wrestling match every day. It was during those times that I learned the value of journaling, and so I would begin to write out my thoughts so I could get them on paper so they wouldn't just be swirling around in my head. I wanted to be able to put my finger on them, pin them down, stop them long enough to get a good look at what I was thinking. And I remember that there was a shift in the way I, I prayed, at least for a season. I had grown up in a spiritual environment where, you know, as I was being discipled in my early years as a Christian, where intercession was the most valued part of prayer, praying for others. And so I had my intercessory prayer lists that I would maintain and and that's what I wanted to spend the bulk of my time doing, is praying for others, because that was the spiritual thing to do. And it is a very spiritual thing to do and highly valued. Very important. But I realized that I needed something else, because I just wasn't feeling it. So I came to the book of Ephesians, and I came to things like chapter 3, where Paul wrote that, the Ephesians should know the love of Christ that passes knowledge that they might be filled with all the fullness of God. I thought, well, that's what I need. I need to experientially know the love of Christ which passes knowledge. I need to be filled with all the fullness of God. And so I started to pray that way. And I felt weird about it at first because this wasn't intercession. This was focused on my needs and it was a very real need in my life. And so I said, Lord, I know that you love me. I know the message of the cross. I know the facts of the gospel are true. I'm convinced of the reality of all of it. But somehow, my heart hasn't gotten the message. And I'm not experiencing it. So I ask you on the basis of Ephesians 3 that I might experientially know your love which passes knowledge that I could be filled with all the fullness of God. And I started praying that, meditating on that, journaling on that truth 
pretty regularly. It wasn't the only thing I prayed about, but it was an important part of what I was praying about. I was praying in the truth of God. And I wish I could tell you that there was this overnight radical change to where I woke up one day and then all of a sudden, okay, I got that. On to something else. It's, it, it was a real growth process. It took a while, and it's still something that I focus on from time to time, although now I have to say I am convinced. And I do feel and experience the love of God for me. And for many it's a struggle to feel this sense of acceptance and worth. But God values you and I, not because of you and I, it's not like he's looking at you or looking at me and saying, boy, you know, you're so cute, I can't help myself. <laughs> it's not like that. But what he does do is he looks at us in his son and says, he's so cute, and you're in him, I can't help myself. I, I'm not trying to be blasphemous here. You know what I'm talking about. I'm not trying to be disrespectful at all. I'm, I'm trying to paint a picture how God sees us. It needs to be prayed in. As all the truths of the scripture need to be prayed in to our experience. So the application is simply this. Get honest with God. How do you really see yourself? Truly. When you come into a group of people like this one, I mean, this is a very anxious moment for a lot of people when they come to church. Who's going to talk to me? Will anybody talk to me? What if somebody talks to me? <laughs> I'm a little scary. What's, your, what's our self-concept? It's an important question. When I walk out the door and head to my place of employment or wherever I am going that day, what's my self-concept? Not that I'm supposed to be thinking about myself. Please don't misunderstand. That's not the focus. But how do I see myself? And the, the biblical answer, of course, is in Christ, with all the spiritual blessings that are in the heavenly places in him. And that's proper and right. So be honest with God. How do you tend to see yourself? Do you tend to see yourself in Christ with all of the accompanying benefits and blessings? Or do you tend to see yourself outside of Christ? Just in your own natural self. Your own default mode. It's a big question. And I have to say that However we see ourselves, it is always strengthened by whether or not we do spend personal, private time with God in prayer and in the word, or whether we do not. That's going to mean everything in terms of whether this becomes real to us. So here's the challenge for this week. Think this through, if you would, if you're so inclined. What will your life look like if you change your self-concept 
using the truths of God's word. What will your life look like if you change your self-concept using the truths of God's word? What will change? And how will it change? Thank you, Lord, for this time that you've given to us in your word. And thank you for these tremendous and wonderful spiritual blessings, which are ours in Christ. We are amazed at your grace, and we praise you for it, and we give you glory for it. Because these are things that only you could have done, and these are things that only you would have done. Because this is who you are, and this is what you're like. God, who is rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses and sins, has made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And we thank you for that, the truth of that. So continue to grow us in the concept and the reality of what you have done for us in the Lord Jesus. Nothing in our hands we bring simply to your cross we cling. Thank you, Lord. And we pray, Father, for anyone that may be here with us this morning that has not yet made that personal commitment to Jesus Christ. And we ask, Lord, that you'd open up their eyes and open up their hearts right now by your Spirit. And I want to just take just a couple of minutes just to talk with you who are here and have not yet made that decision to receive Christ. It is true that God loves you. He loves you so much that he sent his son to pay for your sins and mine. But it's also true that apart from Christ, apart from faith in him, you have no hope. You are headed to an eternity without Christ and you are headed to a place of judgment without Jesus Christ. No Jesus in your life, you have no salvation. There is no other name given among men under heaven by which we must be saved than the name of Jesus. Only Jesus is the way to God. Only Jesus is the truth of God. Only Jesus is the life of God. And if you've not received him, you have no hope of receiving eternal life. And you will still be in your sins and you will have to stand before God to answer for every sin you've ever committed. But God doesn't want you to have to stand in judgment for every sin you've ever committed. That's not his desire. He's not willing that you perish. He's not willing that you be condemned. He's not willing that he be the judge to judge you for your sins. What he does want is for you to turn your life to him and believe in his son. Because what God did do was he punished the sins of the world when Jesus died at Calvary. That's where your sins were judged. That's where our sins were judged, at the cross. When Jesus died, he died for you, and he died for me. If you believe that and trust in Jesus, you'll have eternal life. He'll forgive you, and he'll give you a new start, and he'll make you a new person. If you reject that, then he cannot forgive you, 
and you will remain in your sins. I want to extend that invitation to you right now because God's extending that invitation to you right now. Be reconciled to God. Come to him. Turn your life over to him. Let Jesus be your savior. Open up your heart to him. Be reconciled to God. You who are now his enemy will become his friend when you accept Christ. Is there anyone here this morning that is intent on making that decision? Would you just raise your hand right now? I want to give my life right now to Jesus Christ. I want to believe in him. Would you just raise your hand right where you're seated? I want to pray for you. Anybody this morning? Anybody listening to this online or later on via CD or streaming on our website? You can make a decision too. You can trust Christ. And if you do trust Christ, and if you do allow him to come into your life, then pray this prayer. Lord, I believe I'm a sinner. I know I am. I believe that Jesus died for me. I believe that Jesus rose from the dead. I receive Jesus right now by faith into my life. I accept him as my Savior and as my Lord. Please come into my life and change me, Lord. Make me a new person. Give me the power that I need to live for you. If you pray a prayer like that or that prayer, the Lord will listen to you if you're sincere. And he'll begin to do incredible things in your life. And when he does those things in your life, it's going to be important for you to confess that, to admit that to somebody else. Call us. Here at Calvary Chapel, we'd love to hear your story and get involved in your life. Find a Bible teaching church that can support you in your new faith. God bless you. Amen. That never gets old, does it? Just hearing the gospel presented. You know, that night before his death, when Jesus and his disciples ate what we call the Last Supper together, in Luke 22, it says that as he did this, what Jesus said to them was that we should do this in remembrance of him. You know, at Peter, as he writes his first letter to the church, he talks about reminding them of these things that they already know, but in his mind it was good for them to be reminded. And oh, how we all need to be reminded, don't we? And it's a morning like this when I think we're reminded of what we need to be reminded of. And we're only six verses into this amazing book chosen, predestined to adoption as sons, accepted in the beloved. And we start to unravel these things and we start to understand how much there really is that's wrapped up in those words. You know, Pastor Bill, 
He quoted it today in the message. I'm going to quote it again because I don't think we can hear it enough. It's one of my favorite verses out of Colossians chapter 1. Paul talks about giving thanks to the Father who's qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance in the saints in the light. Then he says that he's delivered us from the power of darkness and he's conveyed us or or translated us into the kingdom of the Son of his love in whom he says we have redemption through his blood and the forgiveness of sins. I loved the illustration, the quotation that Pastor Bill used today about what happened in that process of adoption as you're transferred from one family to another. And I I think sometimes we don't understand that. That the family, that kingdom of darkness that we were born into and spent so much time involved in, we're no longer part of that family. And so there's this you know, this reminder to remember all that's wrapped up in the Lord Jesus and all that's wrapped up in what he's done for us. It's, I don't know if you've ever said it, I've said it. I'll say, oh, honey, remind me not to forget this and such. Think about that. That's a silly statement. And yet, how we do need to be reminded not to forget. So I'm going to ask the men to come forward in a moment. And as Pastor Ken and the team minister, remember the things that we're reminded not to forget. Those things from the word this morning. What it is that the Lord has actually done for us. And meditate on those things. And after everybody has the elements, I'll come back up and we can take them corporately as a body to remember what he's done for us as a church and as a, as a body too. Amen. Father, how we thank you, Lord, for this time. We pray that, uh, that you would, Lord, by the power of your spirit, that you would help us to remember those things that we need to be reminded of. Lord, we pray that you'd be with us now in this time. We ask it in Jesus' name. writing of that night to the church at Corinth, the Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Spirit, which I won't try to improve upon, writes this. He says, I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the night the Lord Jesus, on that same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat. This is my body, which is broken for you. He said, do this in remembrance of me. So let's take the bread together now in remembrance of him. Paul continues, writing that in the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. So let's take the cup now in remembrance of him and that new covenant that he purchased for us. Paul the Apostle concludes 
his thought with this thought, that as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. I'm going to ask the team to to lead us again in, in part of that song, you know, as we enter into that holy place, which we can do and we do do now because we've been accepted in the beloved and now we can enter in according to his righteousness, which is now our righteousness. So maybe they would oblige me and lead us one more time and just again be reminded of these things that we need to remember this morning. Father, your word tells us that we should not be drunk with wine in which is dissipation, but we should be filled with the Holy Spirit. You've commanded us to be filled, and so, Father, we pray that you'd fill us now with your Holy Spirit. Strengthen us, use us this week, empower us for your purposes, and enable us by your Spirit to see and understand and to know and appropriate that which is ours through Christ Jesus, and that which others can have if they'll place their trust in him. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.